2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lam, the host of the channel, and today we're talking to Nicholas Breifogel, David Moon, and Alexandra Bikasova about their new collected volume, Place and Nature, Essays in Russian Environmental History. So... Could you all tell us a little bit about yourselves? Maybe Nick will start with you.
0: Sure. Thanks for having us, Samantha. Um, I'm uh, Nick Breifugel. I'm uh, I'm an associate professor of history at uh, the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and um, and I've been working on for several years a uh, a, a kind of environmental history of uh, of Lake Baikal, uh, and I've also produced several other. Uh, edited volumes dealing with Russian and Soviet environmental history.
2: Okay. David, would you like to say a couple words about yourself?
3: Yeah, for quite a long time now, I've been working on uh, Russian Eurasian transnational environmental history. My particular interest has been in the steppe in grasslands. And so this project uh, brought me to different regions, new regions of Eurasia. I have post at the University of York in England, an honorary post at University College London. And for a couple of years recently, I was a visiting professor at Nazarbayev University in northern Kazakhstan.
2: Okay, thank you. Alexandra, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes,
4: I'm Alexandra Bikasova. I'm an associate professor at the... Um, High School of Economics, uh, St. Petersburg campus, and teaching on bachelor's and master programs. And uh, I'm happy to be the member of the Laboratory for Environmental and Technological History with strong team of scholars who are doing um, en- environmental and technological history. And myself, I'm working on the history of
2: mobility, uh, technology, and environment. Okay, thank you. So let's talk about what inspired this collection. Nick, would you like to tell us?
0: I'd be happy to, and and I guess uh, I would say that in many respects, uh, David gets uh, gets the lion's share of the credit for uh, uh, for inspiring this uh, this project. And it's probably good you sent the question my, my way because I feel he would likely be too modest to uh, to take the applause that he uh, he richly deserves for this. Um, but this is a this is a book that developed out of a uh, a three year uh, grant from the Leverhulme Trust uh, entitled "Exploring Russia's uh, Environmental History and Natural Resources." Uh, it was an international uh, network grant from the Leverhulme Trust, and um, the project, in many respects, uh, was designed really to do. Uh, three things. Uh, one was to, to bring together a sort of international, collaborative, multidisciplinary team of scholars from, um, uh, from Russia, from the United Kingdom, and from the United States, uh, both faculty and graduate students together uh, to, to, to meet, to research, uh, to talk, um, and to learn um, about Russian environmental history. And then in many respects, hopefully, uh, to, uh, to offer a kind of uh, a new, perhaps fuller understanding of Russian and Soviet environmental history to try to place the case of, uh, of Russia uh, into a global context and to, to think about the ways in which we could offer certain types of historical perspective on contemporary environmental issues uh, in Russia and the, and the former Soviet space. Uh, so the, the grant was designed to bring together this, uh, these scholars to explore these questions of our mental history and, and to do so in a way that was perhaps a little bit different, to bring in a kind of uh, new, new approaches methodologically. Uh, and, and what I mean by that was uh, the grant uh, and this whole project uh, was focused particularly on bringing scholars uh, out into the field, placing them into the environments, uh, into the nature that they were studying. Uh, not simply to, uh, to do the usual thing, which is to kind of take us to archives or libraries, uh, to have us meet in uh, windowless rooms, to have conferences and that sort of thing, uh, but actually to get out um, into the world itself, uh, to embed ourselves uh, into uh, natural environments uh, where we could know, smell, taste, feel, explore, uh, understand these places uh, on a very kind of physical and visceral uh, level. Uh, and also to meet with uh, local people, local inhabitants of these regions, uh, and local scholars, uh, and uh, in order to really be able to uh, enhance uh, what we could bring to the table when we wrote about Russian environmental history. So we weren't just basing what we write on, uh, on dusty uh, documents somewhere, uh, but rather from a real lived uh, experience in, uh, in these places. Uh, the original project focused particularly on three regions. Uh, the grant did on, uh, on the Solovetsky Islands in the northwest, uh, Chernobyl and the exclusion zone, uh, and then like Baikal out in, uh, in Siberia. Uh, and this book is, a, um, uh, is one of the outcomes of, uh, of this larger project with this larger vision. Uh, and of course, it's the kind of book that, uh, that with its geographic diversity, uh, and its disciplinary uh, types of diversity it simply wouldn't be possible for a single individual to write. And so it's a marvelous compilation of, uh, of the expertise of, uh, of a variety of scholars from, uh, from around the world.
2: So what did you learn from locating your research in the places you study and what unique perspectives does this bring to your topic? Nick, we'll start with you.
0: Um. I, uh, you know, for me, I I think what I really brought uh, to this whole project was, was my experience and knowledge of, uh, of Lake Baikal in particular, uh, that this Baikal, uh, is a place of, you know, of world importance and world interest. It's certainly one of the, the most interesting, uh, and, uh, and dare I say, kind of unique environmental locations in, uh, uh, you know, in Russia and the kind of Soviet Union and, uh, Uh, And this was an area that I think the team was particularly interested in uh, in exploring. Uh, And I think I also brought uh, to this project a a larger focus on on what we might call water history uh, and exploring the human water relationship uh, over time.
2: Okay. David, what about you? What do you think locating your research in places brought to your studies here?
3: Right. I think we learned a lot from sharing our expertise and experience. So one of the things I learned from was meeting people in locations we visited, exploring them, as Nick has just explained, but also exploring different locations, meeting different people. I'd not previously been to Lake Baikal or indeed Siberia. So I learned a lot from that trip, from exploring it from the people we met. I hate to single out chapters from the book because we're very fortunate to have a whole series of excellent chapters by fine scholars. But if I can just mention one, a chapter on late Baikal by Arkady and Tatiana Kalichman. They were they uh, scientists, geographers based in Irkutsk. They joined our trip to Baikal, and they were like our expert guides. Their chapter in the book draws on their deep knowledge and involved in the movement to protect and conserve Lake Paikal going back to the late Soviet period and both in our conversations on our trip and subsequently and in their essay of their book, they bring not just their scientific knowledge but also their passion for the environment and they shared that with us and that was something I very much got out of the trip, out of the project, out of the book. I could carry on, talk about different chapters, but I think i just uh, mentioned that as the example.
2: Okay. Alexandra, what about you? What unique perspective did you get from visiting the places you researched?
4: I agree with my colleagues, yeah, with Nick and David, and that is exactly um, important points for me as well. But I would like to stress one point more. Uh, on that way, um, what we were doing together for several years, we were, we were on the way. So we are between places, yeah, and we were working together, exchanging our experiences, yeah, and um, skills, uh, and sharing ideas with each other, and uh, with, I mean, local peoples, inhabitants of places, and. All that experience of being on the way, yeah, being in between, um, teamwork, yeah, that is an um, exciting experience for me, yeah, during the project.
2: Okay. So the main thesis of this book is how human engagement and input transforms wider undifferenti- undifferentiated spaces of the natural world into culturally meaningful and technologically differentiated places. Can you explain to our listeners the difference between space and place in this context? Maybe David, you would like to try?
3: Yes, both Nick and Alexander have spoken about how we shared our experiences of these places, of our research and brought different uh, perspectives, different ideas. And during these, we were looking for theoretical underpinnings to what we were doing. And I look back to the seminal work of human geographer Li Fu Tuan, writing back in the 1970s. And for Tuan, and I think also for me and perhaps more generally for the group, space is an abstract, space is freedom. And I understood Tuan to mean that these are areas which particular people have no connections with, no personal experiences of haven't invested time and energy in. Perhaps they're just areas they've looked at on maps, perhaps have read about, or perhaps looked on Google Earth. Places have acquired particular meaning for particular people who've got to know them, had experiences of them, drawn sustenance from culturally and physically. So they've become sort of embodied in these places and perhaps the other way around as well. In the context of our book and the project that emerged from it, it emerged from, I'd not previously been to any of the locations we visited because my expertise is on other parts of Russia. So to me, all the places we visited, Solovki Chernobyl, Baikal, we also went to the northern Urals region, were just areas I'd read about, I knew about them, but I've now visited them, spent time there, explored them, got to know them, got to know people who've lived and worked there. We also gained close experience from the forms of transport we used in our expeditions alexandra spoke briefly about this idea of being between places so we walked on Solov key we walked on the shores of lake baikal explored former industrial regions of the urals on foot we sailed in boats on and swam in lake baikal we rode boats in the canals on Solov key so we got close personal experience of them so we turned these spaces into places.
2: And how do differing definitions of nature affect the ideas you explore in the book?
3: One thing that emerged from our discussions is comparing, and when, we, when we're when we writing up the book, is comparing Twan's distinction of space and place with the concept of environing, which has been developed and put forward by uh, Sverka and Paul Ward, which we also discussed in the introduction to the book. They argue that nature is perhaps something out there, but nature becomes environment as a consequence of human influence. So to take examples from our book, and this is explored in detail by Alexei Tchaikovsky and Yulia Laius in their chapter, which opens part one of the book, the nature of Solovki, the Solovetsky Islands, was... To use Soline and Ward, Ward's term environed by the monks who lived there for centuries, exploited its resources and gave cultural meaning to the islands. By the Gulag labourers who were there in the interwar years, by conservationists who now protect the environment and its natural and current cultural heritage. So we brought these concepts of space and place and environing and located them in particular places which are explored in our book.
2: Okay, that sounds really interesting. So many of your chapters deal with water histories. Uh, Nick, could you tell our listeners what you mean by this term and why water histories are interesting to scholars?
0: Uh, in some respects, you know, water history is is as simple as uh, I mean, it's it's a branch of uh, of the broader field of environmental history. Uh, but is really looking at humanity's relationship with water, with waterways, uh, and with aquatic environments and ecologies uh, over time. Um, And this matters because ultimately, you know, water has defined every aspect of human life that we can imagine. Uh, We are ultimately primarily made up of water, about 60% on average of our bodies. Uh, Much of the Earth's surface, in fact, uh, water is integral to life. Uh, everywhere. Uh, So the water has water defines human life from the from the sort of molecular, biological and ecological uh, to the cultural, religious, economic, political uh, everywhere you look. So in some respects, the history of humans is actually also the history of water uh, and uh, and vice versa, because of the fact that humans cannot survive without water uh, in so many different ways for drinking, for food, uh, and, uh, and so many other important um, uh, matters. Uh, the history of water is one that, that allows for immediate comparison across time and across place. Uh, and uh, yeah, and is tremendously important. And, and it can be a whole variety of different areas from, uh, let me think, so from irrigation and agriculture, for example, uh, most of our water today goes into agriculture production. Uh, drinking water, water pollution, uh, the religious uses and kind of implications of water, uh, drought I'm sorry, droughts and floods, um, you know, bathing, cleanliness, uh, leisure, uh, beauty. Water is an energy source, whether from water wheels or to hydroelectricity. Water is transport. Uh, so there's a whole variety of different types of topics that uh, this area takes on. I think it's really an important area to study. Uh, because of the ways in which it intersects with just about every aspect of human life. Uh, and because, of course, today we live in a world that um, in a variety of places is struggling with a series of water uh, crises, whether too much water or too little, or water that is uh, of a quality that we can't use, often because of, uh, of pollution and that sort of thing. A lot, of, a lot in the news recently about droughts in the West of the United States, uh, plastic pollution in our oceans, uh, and the list goes on. So the studying of water history is tremendously important uh, for contemporary issues as well.
2: So, within the context of this book, were there any water histories that struck you as particularly interesting?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was the book is great in terms of doing water history. It's funny. we didn't set out to write a kind of water history type of book. this wasn't uh, this wasn't the goal here, but to a certain degree, the uh, the places we end, ended up, like the Salivetsky Islands, uh, obviously in the White Sea, and then Lake Baikal—you know, two extraordinarily interesting and important uh, it, kind of places in nature uh, and uh, environmental locations for uh, for study—they uh, are both ones that have um, uh, have immediate kind of water uh, implications, and. Um, you know, obviously there's several uh, chapters in the book that deal with Lake Baikal, which is close to my heart. But let me just highlight a couple of others. We have um, a, a great chapter by Andy Bruno uh, on uh, on uh, Lake Imandra, uh and a kind of long history of uh, of this lake uh, and the uh, the human relationship uh, to the lake. Uh, For those of us of, you know, who
2: may not know, could you explain where that lake? Is by I think most people are familiar with, but Lakey Mandra our listeners may not recognize.
0: Absolutely, very happy to. Um, it is. Um, uh, it's up kind of uh, in uh, in the in the uh, uh, the kind of northern Kola kind of uh, uh, Karelia region, um, very close up, uh, just kind of south just south of Murmansk kind of area, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, this is something that that uh, Andy Brunner took on in his in his marvelous book on the kind of environmental history of this region. But the lake itself is particularly interesting and important for the ways in which it it shifts over time from a uh, from a place of uh, of kind of food importance and religious importance and transport importance to the for the for the the native Sami people uh, to uh, to a place that became. Uh, Tremendously polluted because of the ways in which uh, Soviet industry used it as a uh, as a kind of dumping ground for waste, uh, for mining and industrial activities, and then the ways in which the lake became integrated into uh, into energy production in the region, both through a hydroelectric dam uh, and through um, uh, uh, through the use of the water of Lake Imandra in uh, in, in a nuclear facility. Uh, and in and, and uh and Bruno really takes us through the transformation of the human relationship uh, with this lake uh, across uh the, the long durée um and and ends with us realizing the ways in which well we're never going to go back to the world that there was before but now there the, the lake now is in some ways a uh, is a new type of, uh, of ecosystem uh, and a new type of kind of hydrological reality as a result of all of these different types of human uh, interventions uh, over the course of time. Uh, the other chapter I might highlight is, uh, um, is, is one about St. Petersburg uh, by Robert Dale. Uh, he, uh, he explores, and in, in, in ways that I think are really interesting, a kind of comparison of the uh, 1824 flood of St Petersburg uh, and the 1924 flood of St Petersburg in the uh, or Leningrad I should say uh and the um and the different ways in which uh people at the time responded to uh and uh, and tried to kind of save themselves from these these floods I mean uh St Petersburg has from its very beginning been defined by uh the water uh that was uh, around it uh and then you have a river but also just the kind of wetlands that really was um was uh st petersburg at its founding uh and then you know these these consistent and ongoing floods uh that uh, that have in some ways plagued the city uh these two being particularly uh important moments in that regard and so he tells the story and then compares the uh compares the experiences of, uh, of these two floods. And it's a really interesting and, and uh, an exciting chapter.
3: Can I just come in quickly here, Samantha? One of the things we aim to do in the book was to turn attention to areas which readers specialists may not automatically associate with Russian Soviet environmental history. So rather than going over, again, topics that have been researched before in a lot of depth, we wanted to bring in new areas. And so water history was one of those. You wouldn't necessarily think a book on Russian Soviet environmental history would lots about water. But of course, in the way Nick's explained, it was central not just to our project, but it's central, I think, to Russian, Soviet, and indeed global environmental history. So turning attention to things that were new, and this is true of many of the chapters in the book, as well as the ones we've mentioned so far.
2: Well, certainly when I talk to people about Central Asia, water is always key. Yes,
3: of course, yeah.
2: So you also talk about mobility histories in this book. Alexandra, would you like to explain this term to our listeners and how that dovetails with environmental histories? Yes,
4: uh, thank you. Um, studies of movement, yeah, in geographical space, that is uh, the focal point of our collection. And... Um, um, Spetal and mobility turns, uh, which happened in social sciences and humanities uh, recently, uh, they were very much important for our approach of space, mobility, uh, technologies of movement yeah, and environment. And that is exactly underlying themes yeah, in our collection. The circulation of people, information, and things across huge space. Uh, of the Russian Empire uh, transformed uh, populations and landscapes restructured identities um, created um, enduring legacies as pilgrims, migrants travelers, tourists moved they encountered various environments which required different techniques and cultures to engage with natural world And um, when we are focusing on that practices of movement and um, engaging with different kinds of environment, that is also about um, producing different meanings on the the way. And um, exploration of mobility practices to better understand Travelers' behaviours, perceptions, motivations. That is an exciting thing dealing with uh, mobility histories yeah? and um, focusing in that context of environmental and technological history. And uh, our contribution to the collection we co-authored with Ekaterina Kalimeneva is exactly uh, focused yeah, on that theme, And we tried to look at how places along the route of Trans-Siberian Railway were presented in the guidebooks as landscapes of transportation, yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh, to that growing numbers of travelers, yeah, who made their journey in the final decades of Imperial Russia, um, while um, uh, the... Railroad itself, yeah, and the railroad infrastructure was presented um, as a um, symbol of progress, yeah, something huge yeah, and impressive. Um, other regions, yeah, with um, lakes, yeah, and um, forests, they were presented as wild places. And um, through that uh, uh, the uh, railway journey, yeah, itself made distant areas, yeah, and landscapes, uh, like the region of uh, Lake Baikal, accessible to uh, m- many people, yeah, and through the opportunities which they can enjoy, sitting in the com- railway compartments and uh, admires panoramas. Um uh, that is uh, the process of how uh, those panoramas became kind of commodities, yeah? exactly uh, through that
2: process of railway journey. So who was the audience for these guidebooks? Were they meant for Russians? Were they meant for foreign travelers? Were they meant for wealthy people? or regular travelers?
4: There were different kinds of guidebooks, and they were addressed to different kinds of audiences. Yeah? Those uh, which were published on Russian language, yeah, they were much more addressed to the uh, Russian-educated reading public. Uh, but there were another Publications—they were extremely small. Yeah, if we're comparing to that with the photographs, yeah, or drawings, and um, they were addressed to, to those with um, um, which can afford, yeah, buying such kind of books. So there are different kinds of audience audiences in Imperial Russia as well. But you know. Uh, there were a number of publications that were published in uh, main European languages. Yeah? They were addressed for uh, those who are interested yeah, to uh, travel to Russia and cross mm-hmm. that huge imperial space and reach maybe uh, Japan or China. Yeah, and those yeah published in French, English, uh, German languages—they were addressed for different
2: audience. And did the different guidebooks have different depictions of nature? Did Russian guidebooks treat nature and the wild areas differently than guidebooks aimed at Europeans?
4: Um. I should say that um, all of them, yeah, they were presented um, natural environment in the same way, yeah, and that is about uh, uh, fascinating technological achievements and innovations, yeah, like bridges, yeah, Uh, that huge uh, infrastructures, yeah, and... uh, Wild nature of Siberia. Yeah, you know, so that is exactly the point for uh, all kinds of guidebooks that were published at that time for several decades. Okay, thank you
2: very much.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Uh, Nick, I believe you also have a chapter that deals with migration history when you talk a little bit about the monks uh, and other people that move into the islands of Slovakia.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I I contribute. There there are two uh, two chapters in the book that deal with Solovki. Uh, you know, the first is is a really marvelous chapter that David referred to earlier by uh, uh, by Yuli Elias and uh, uh, and Alexey which is a really marvelous kind of historical uh, examination of uh, of the ways in which this uh, this island, in some respects, turned from uh, from nature to environment, um, mm-hmm. using that a concept of environing. And I, I added a, a chapter that was much more a kind of personal reflection uh, on my experiences uh, traveling there. Uh, the, uh, the the kind of core part, where this is not the core part, but the central part of the book, has four different kinds of travel essays uh, that that r- relate the the experiences of uh, of our team as as they went to a variety of different uh, locations, um, you know, from Solovki to Lake Baikal to. Uh, Uh, to the Ural mountains. And, uh, and these, these travel essays were designed to be a little bit different to really kind of bring out the kind of personal experience of, of being a, you know, an environmental historian, but one who is uh, experiencing these places. And, 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 and in my case, experiencing uh, Solovki for the first time, that's a place I had not been before uh, joining this group. And, uh, and, the the whole question of of uh, of migration or mobility or or getting there was something that was of, of real interest to me while I was spending time on the islands. The uh, you know the the, the story of, uh, of of these islands is one in which there there, there really wasn't human habitation initially, other than uh, fisher uh, you know, fishermen who would go out uh, seasonally and and for short periods of time to kind of fish the waters uh, and then head back home. Uh, the shift to kind of human habitation uh, happens uh, as a result of uh, of, of, of two monks uh, in search of, uh, of 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 solitude and uh, an escape from uh, from human life. They want to get away from uh, from all the other people so that they could uh, they could praise God and contemplate uh, God and be kind of away from any other kinds of worldly distractions. Uh, And in a place that would really test them uh, physically uh, and show their kind of spiritual metal, Um, and uh, and so you know they they head off and uh, and and paddle their way across from the mainland to uh, uh, to uh, to the Solovetsky Islands. And uh, you know I'd read this story before and I'd even taught it in classes, but uh, to be honest, making the trip out there really uh, helped me to appreciate uh, just. I, don't know, I suppose it's the courage or the dedication uh, of, uh, of these monks that they set off into seas that can be extraordinarily rough uh, and difficult uh, and, uh, and off to a place that they couldn't see, that they hadn't see, hadn't been before. People told them that it existed, but they couldn't be 100% sure uh, and that they would head off to this particular place, uh, just the two of them with no resources, no backup, no anything, uh, was something that was was really quite remarkable uh, just for, from just my own personal experience because i I went out on on the ferry on a very calm day and it was a lovely beautiful ride and then actually I had to leave early from Solovki a day early because the storms uh, were so intense that they were just about to shut down the uh, the ferry and I had to catch a flight back and all these sorts of things but to suddenly realize just how how rough the seas could be was really something quite extraordinary to me and um, but then you know the story is these monks they went out and and they're renowned as uh, as as uh, ascetics and hermits really spread and they start to attract other people uh, who came to join them to be a part of their uh, their religious community. I don't think the monks were particularly happy to have others arrive, but they came nonetheless and then this was the foundation of the of the really remarkable monastery that is uh, there to this day. Um, and for me, the experience of Salki was also amazing from the, from a a mobility perspective in the sense that, you know, initially um, it was the, the the cold and distance and, and really harsh setting uh, that drew uh, these, uh, these monks religious figures out to the area. Uh, And, uh, and, and then in the 20th century, uh, sort of key became uh, one of the founding places of the, of the Gulag system. And curiously enough, once again, the, the distance, the cold, the forbidding and really difficult kind of climate became something that drew people out, but in this case, not voluntarily, that they were forced to come out to, uh, to, uh, to the area. And so we see a similar sort of human relationship to nature in terms of the, the ways in which the specific, specific sort of temperatures and climate uh, and distance of Solovki brought people out, but for totally different reasons. Uh, from, you know, the 14th and 15th, the 16th centuries uh, to the uh, to the 20th. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's a remarkable place. I could go on about the canals, uh, which they built there for transport, uh, but I'll leave that for the moment. That was also another amazing part of the story of mobility there.
2: That's funny because it's very similar to the history of Kirov Vyatka. <laughs> you know, our climate makes us a place where... They have been dumping political prisoners for centuries. You know, people like Saltikov, Shedrin, uh, Alexander Herzen were exiled to Vyatka. Herzen found Vyatka so terribly boring that he claimed it forced him to have an affair with a married woman. <laughs> and of course, in the 20th century, we also had our own gulag, Vyatlag, uh, in the north of the region. So it's, it's interesting to see how these climates affect. But we also got some advantages. Uh, Vyatka didn't have much in the way of serfdom. They developed strong zemstvas as a result. So there is a history of self-determination, self-rule, and cryovidinia, uh, an understanding of ourselves as a distinct and separate region that really derives from climate too. So that's really interesting.
0: Well, and that is, just, just to follow up there, that is one of the things that I think we found really interesting about this project is, is, is taking on a series of, of really big, perhaps even global questions of environmental history, but then embedding them into the, into the specifics of, of each locality that we went to and realizing the ways in which uh, the, you know, the geology, the hydrology, uh, the climate of specific regions and then the human interactions with those uh, were really determinative of creating uh, creating the types of societies and the types of cultures and the types of human experiences that existed in each of these places.
3: Yeah. We built mobility into the structure of the book. And so in the first section, we take our readers around northwestern, northwestern Russia, the European north, as well as the chapters we've mentioned. Alan Rowe takes us into the Taiga forest of Karelia, and Oblast. Then in the final part of the book, we travel right across Siberia with um, Alexandra McCasso Kastri- and Yekaterina Kalimeneva's chapter. And we end up in the Soviet and the Russian Far East with Mark Sikolsky's essay on uh, hunting, civil society and wildlife conservation on the Pacific coast. So our readers will also get some sense of the space and mobility from the structure of the book and the chapters. Cool.
2: Um, So let's talk about this idea of Russian environmentalism, because the words Russia, Soviet Union and environment tend to conjure up images of gargantuan Stalinist schemes to conquer nature by ruthlessly exploiting resources, building large industrial cities from scratch that polluted their surroundings and the inhabitants damming rivers, destroying ecosystems and of course ecological disasters. But there were also movements to conserve and protect nature that date all the way back to the Tsarist era. With Nick last time we did an interview we talked briefly about these ideas, but I was wondering David if you would care to inform our listeners of what sort of environmental protection schemes and movements developed in Russia and the USSR? and how this information should change our perception of these polities.
3: Yes, this is an important point. Before I do so, just a quick comment on your remarks about gargantuan schemes and transformation and pollution of nature. These are all well-documented, completely undeniable, and there's been a great deal of research on the environmental degradation of these lands as part of a global story of this. In our book, we have an important essay by Yelena Kochetkova that looks at industrial development and institutional debates about Lake Baikal and how they gradually moved towards protecting the environment rather than just polluting it. But this is a long, complex story. On the experience of nature protection, this isn't something I think that immediately springs to mind when people think of words Russia, Soviet Union, environmental history, But there's a legacy of nature protection for scientific reasons going back to the late 19th century. And scientists argued of the need to protect what they believed to be samples of untouched nature. They thought there were areas of nature which had not been affected by human impact. Subsequent research in ecology, we know this isn't really the case. But they wanted to protect them as baselines as models through which to carry out research into human impact on the environment and models to draw on for ways to think and devise more sustainable ways of using the land. One of the scientists who pioneered this idea was Vasily Dokuchayev in the 1890s and his research on steppe environments. This was also the scientific underpinning for a network of nature reserves, strict nature reserves called Zapovedniki, which developed all around the Soviet Union in all the different environmental regions. In a few moments, Nick will speak a bit about Balguzin on Lake Baikal, which we visited, which was the first of these state nature reserves. But it wasn't the first reserve in the Russian Empire that was based on a principle of protecting an area that was believed to be virgin nature. And this is in the steppe of southern Ukraine, founded by a private landowner, Friedrich fine in the 1880s. He set aside an area of unplowed steppe on his estate just to the north of the Crimean Peninsula to protect it for scientific research because he saw that all the land was being plowed up, all the steppe was being plowed up. The native wildlife, the wild horses, the saiga had all disappeared. So he wanted to preserve a sample, and then he started collecting wild ungulates and putting them on, on his land, he was ennobled by Tsar Nicholas II for his services to nature conservation. I think something that's not widely known. Uh, One of the pioneers of Russian environmental history uh, in the West globally was uh, Douglas Wiener, who wrote two really impressive books. Uh, which are also history of science as well as environmental history, where it explores these ideas of nature protection, nature conservation, a scientific underpinning, uh, the application of these in establishing this system of nature reserves around the Soviet Union, and also the struggles the scientists engaged with when they were coming up against an official ideology that was based on building socialism, industrialization, exploiting nature, transforming nature, and the way the scientists managed to carve out a space for themselves, to carve out a space for nature protection, to the extent where they would present their work in nature conservation as part of socialist construction. Uh, He calls this protective coloration, the way they presented their ideas as fitting with the governing ideology. But they were able to persist. The, The network of nature reserves, which we visited Uh, one or two during our trips, and many of us have visited many others in the course of our researches, they persisted throughout Soviet times. They got cut back at various times they were interfered with, but they did did continue. So this is an important story, which is known through Douglas Wiener's work and other work by, for example, Felix Stilmark. But I think this deserves emphasis. Then in the 1980s, with the advent of perestroika and glassness, then we saw the emergence of environmentalist movements, and we would understand them internationally in the Soviet Union, in particular provoked by uh, the Chernobyl explosion, but also issues such as the pollution of Lake Baikal, and I've spoken about the kalikman's involvement in these movements, which they speak about in their chapter in our book. Yeah, one thing, we've mentioned Chernobyl a couple of times in this interview. We actually published separately on Chernobyl, so we don't feature Chernobyl in this particular book, but we do address these issues.
2: Yeah, I was starting to wonder if I had really <laughs> skipped a chapter <laughs> or something. <laughs>
3: no, the chapter that Chernobyl is elsewhere. You can uh, we Well, I won't talk about it because Liz uh, listeners is Warren, so you can just Google uh, my name, Chernobyl, and they'll find something. They'll find some of the things we wrote.
2: Okay. So, Nick, you wrote on Barguzin Zapovetnik. Would you like to tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is, why this uh, nature reserve is particularly important and what you've learned about it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to. If you don't mind, I'd love to highlight just two other. We, we, we have we have several chapters that deal with the question of nature Uh, protection. And I just wanted to, I'll speak about bad cuisine because, you know, it's very close to my heart and I'm very happy to do that. I also just wanted to highlight two other chapters that we've talked a little bit less about so far in the interview, um, but uh, that also focus on these questions. One, one is the chapter by Mark Sokolsky that, um, uh, that looks at the Russian Far East uh, in the late 19th and early parts of the 20th century uh, particularly looking at the uh, the ways in which uh, we see the de- the early development of uh, of nature protection movements uh, focused in around kind of elite hunting societies who are trying to protect their game um, from extirpation and uh, and he tells a marvelous and really interesting story about the ways in which nature conservation there gets caught up in particularly in in, in racial issues around uh, colonial development and how. I mean, these hunting societies uh, you know, blamed uh, Chinese uh, in particular, but also Korean migrants uh, for uh, for the um, uh, for the demise of species uh, so that the imposition of colonial power and nature protection went, in some respects, hand in glove there in ways that it might be surprising to some readers. Uh, the other chapter I just want to highlight is actually so if Mark was in the, the late 19th or early part of the 20th century, uh, we have another really marvelous chapter, uh, by Alan Rowe, uh, which looks at, um, the, uh, the kind of the origins of, uh, of the development of, uh, of, of a national park in Karelia, uh, the Vodolozora, uh, national park. And, uh, uh, Alan, as anybody knows from his, uh, his book on, on the history of national parks in, um, uh, in, in, in the Soviet Union, uh, has done an incredible amount of research and spent a great deal of time in these areas. And he tells a really remarkable story of the very personal uh, venture and experience uh, of a a single individual from Ukraine uh, to help develop this this national park. And the parks were, you know, David described the the Zabaviedniki um, as as one of the, ultimately one of the great contributions to conservation uh, that Russia and the Soviet Union has made. Uh, the national parks were a slightly different type of model—one that came out of the United States, uh, with the idea of parks being places where you could, uh, uh, where you would protect nature, but you would also allow for human tourism and, and human experience there. And and uh, Alan Rose's chapter uh, in the book really does an amazing job of exploring those kinds of questions. Um, in between those two bookends, yeah, I uh, I, I have a chapter that uh, that explores the 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 kind of history of the origin um, and beginnings of the Barguzin Zapovednik. The the Barguzin Zapovednik was was created uh, or came into being in in 1916, uh, just uh, just months before the uh, the end of uh, of the Tsarist era. It was the first, as David said, state-sponsored nature protection kind of uh, or Zapovednik. in, uh, in, in Russian history, and it has continued uh, to this day and, and remains. And one of the, for me, one of the great uh, opportunities of this, uh, of this whole project was the opportunity to, to go into the Zapavyednik and spend a few days there uh, with, uh, with the group, uh, you know, hiking uh, through, the, uh, uh, through the extraordinary forest there, uh, spending time in, in the little village of Dovshah, uh, meeting the people who are who are looking after this Zaporivsky uh, today, um, and it's important because it uh, this Zaporivsky is important because of its its longevity, because it was tremendously successful ultimately, and and because in many respects it became a kind of model uh, for the future development of Zaporivsky uh, in in uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and what I found most interesting in telling this story of its origins in 1916. Uh, was was the ways in which uh, it wasn't just that humans came in and decided they wanted to protect nature, uh, but but that the the geological, the hydrological, uh, the various species that lived in this region had uh, not always conscious, obviously, uh, but had uh, had real. Uh, Kind of influence on the process of where they set up this upavietnik, how big it was going to be, what the borders were going to be, uh, and this sort of thing. And uh, this is the the barbuzin is up on the the uh, uh, the northeast uh, side uh, of Lake Baikal. It's it's pretty distant from many things, and certainly was in 1916. Uh, but a great deal of their the the reason for choosing this location had to do with the desire to protect. Uh, the local sable population, uh, sables were a tremendously important economic, uh, uh, kind of commodity. Uh, they had been disappearing quite rapidly, uh, over, uh, over time throughout all of Siberia. There was a particular type of sable with a very, very highly desired type of, uh, fur in terms of color and, uh, uh and quality. Uh, and so part of the reason to protect this region was to, uh, uh, was to protect uh, the sable, so set aside land uh, in in this part of Baikal uh, in order to try to protect the sable and to try to protect this kind of commodity. Um, the other thing that I found really interesting about this story, just to highlight quickly, is you know when you set up the question, you talked about sort of the difference between you know the the heavy-handed uh, and and almost kind of painful interventions of. Uh, uh, of, you know, gigantic kinds of uh, environmental um, uh, buildings uh, and, uh, and interventions. Um, and then compared to the sort of nature conservation, one of the things that becomes clear in the history of Barguzin is the ways in which nature protection was itself also a human intervention uh, into nature in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, uh, many of the, the native peoples of that region, the Evens uh, were pushed out, uh, of their lands as a result of all of this. Uh, and at the same time, as soon as they start to set aside, uh, this region for protection, uh, then suddenly, uh, there's a change in the ecosystems, uh, in the sense that no longer are there humans hunting around. Uh, and instead you start to see, uh, a kind of vibrant growth of multiple different types of species that probably wouldn't have uh, grown up otherwise. The development of, uh, of integro, uh, integrated types of uh, ecosystems in this region as a result of kind of humans standing back. So the decision not to intervene in, or to protect a region actually has its own uh, environmental and ecological kinds of outcomes. Cool.
2: Um, so did you enjoy your trip there?
0: Me? Yes, mm-hmm. tremendously. Uh, I think I, I enjoyed every trip that we did. Uh, and, uh, you know, the the trip to Bargozine in particular was really remarkable to be able to, um, I mean, I, and again, this is this is part of the, I think the methodological contribution of the volume is that it was one thing for me to, to read about the formation of this nature preserve, to read about its activities over the decades, uh, to look at it on a map, to even look at it on Google Earth, but to actually be there, to be able to walk up and down the river areas, to, to actually see what these rivers really looked like and felt like. Uh, ones that I've been staring at at a map, uh, to be able to hike up into the forest to get a really good feel of what what the people in the 19th century were really actually talking about when they talked about uh the types of trees that were there and the strands and why they chose one river over another uh as as the border uh for uh, for the for the and this sort of thing and I mean it's an extraordinarily beautiful uh location I found so just on a visceral level I uh. Uh well, it became very yeah, it became very close to my heart. Uh the uh, to be able to see, I mean, just the trees and the forests. Um and uh, so yeah, remarkable place. And and we went in a year, uh it, well, the environment and nature are never far away in the sense that we went in a year where there was tremendous forest fires uh in Siberia and in the Baikal area, so that there was smoke everywhere. Uh, while we were there. So a lot of the kind of what you might see in the distance was actually obscured as a result of all this. And it was sort of a reminder of the ways in which, uh, you know, climate matters and in in terms of setting off these fires. Uh, It was also a year where the the waters of Lake Baikal were as warm as I've certainly ever experienced. And uh, uh, so usually it's a pretty chilly swim, uh, you know, the kind that sort of uh, takes your breath away. Uh, but uh, boy, that the year that we were there, uh, swimming around uh, just outside Barguzin, was uh, was extraordinarily warm and 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 really you know pleasurable for a change. So yeah, it was good fun, good fun for sure, as well as being extraordinarily important for my own kind of intellectual development.
2: Yeah, I find it really does make a difference when you can see in person the things you research. I mean. I've lived in my research area for almost 10 years now and I like taking day trips out into the countryside to see the different villages and even now how remote some of them are, how poorly connected to infrastructure and trying to imagine, you know, based on my own research, what that life must have been like in the 1930s, you know, how difficult administration and stuff would have been. So yeah, it's, I think it's a really important thing for people to do, to see them in real life. So our very last question is, what do you want listeners and readers to take away from the collection? Alexandra, why don't we start with you? We haven't heard from you in a while.
4: I should say that engagement yeah, and positive uh, emotions, yeah, impulses, Uh, when we are thinking about place-based research conducted in a strong international interdisciplinary team, yeah, and uh, when, I mean, listening and uh, opening the book, yeah, and looking in through and um, uh, to the photos, yeah, and to the different perspectives, yeah, maybe that kind of things like emotions, yeah, and... uh, engagement that is most important things. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I did notice your book has a lot of photographs for a a historical book and a lot of color photographs. Um, So that was an interesting and welcome change. Uh, David, would you like to tell us what you would like our listeners to learn?
3: Before I do so, I should acknowledge the levy Hume Trust, which provided funding for us to have colour photographs. So we were very pleased. And also Whitehorse Press has done a wonderful job in producing and presenting the book. I've got three quick points on what I hope readers, listeners will take away. One, Russian Soviet environmental history, more than just uh, destruction, transformation in nature. This is an important part of this. But this part of the world is part of a, a more complex, multifaceted, Global story of human engagement with the environment. The second point: there are many fascinating, important regions of Russia, of Eurasia, which have fascinating environmental histories that merit further research, further investigation. And thirdly, a point we keep coming back to, which Alexandra has just spoken about: I think the value of drawing on personal experiences to help us understand the topics we're researching and help us explain. A number of authors are doing this. Kate Brown does this in her work on Chernobyl, Plutopia, and Atomic Cities. Bathsheba de her recent book, Floating Coasts, on the Bering Straits region. Both these authors draw on their personal experience. In our book, some of our authors do this implicitly in the way they present the depth of their understanding. Others, in particular, the section of photographic essays we have in the middle of the book, do this explicitly where we draw on our personal engagement, personal experiences of the places we explored.
2: Okay. And Nick, what would you like our listeners to take away? Uh,
0: I have the sense that David and, and Alexandra have, uh, have covered much of, uh, of what I'd say, uh, but, I, well, let me just underscore or uh, or, or, uh, or kind of support what they said. I mean, I, for me, I, I think that what I hope people will take away is, is first the the real value and importance of, uh, of international kind of collaborative, interdisciplinary type of uh, type of work. Historians are uh, traditionally, you know, solitary types of souls, uh, and uh, and you know, for me, the the extraordinary benefit that the, that there is in um, in people working together and learning from each other. The amount that I learned from uh, from David, from Alexandra, from so many of the other scholars on our uh, uh, in, in in our community, in our network, uh, is is almost immeasurable to me. I, uh, I was really transformed as a, as a historian in the, in that process, and so I'm I'm really thankful for that. And and I hope that this book can be a a, a model and a reminder to people of the importance of that kind of uh, of collaborative. Uh, teamwork uh, in things like history, which are, as I say are so often individual types of affairs. Um, I'd also highlight for the readers the importance of uh, of uh, of the personal experience uh, for the depth of understanding, as David mentioned, uh, but also because you know we as authors in 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 the writing of history so often try to write ourselves out of the story. we try to write from a a sort of omniscient kind of narrator perspective as if we're really not there and our own, uh, our own sort of experiences and approaches um, are supposed to be you know, hidden or behind the scenes, are not supposed to come onto the page directly. I mean, obviously we all bring those things to everything we write. Um, and so I uh, like our approaches in this book in the way in which we are very upfront and very clear about the ways in which our, our personal experiences with these places uh, have really defined how we're going to write about them. What are the stories we, we're going to tell, uh, how we're going to approach those stories and, and the connections that we feel uh, to these places, because one can't help but feel some kind of a connection to a place, whether it's uh, a close connection or a, uh, or a sense of, uh, uh, of, of, you know, disgust or dislike for a particular place. But one feels these kinds of, uh, one has strong feelings in that way about the places one comes to. Uh, and, uh and to bring those out uh, into the foreground of how we write strikes me as very, uh, very important. And, uh, and of course, you know, uh, to write environmental history, it's essential. Uh, and really, I mean, as you said, Samantha, not just not just environmental history, but really any kind of history to know the places, to spend time in the places you've been, even if you are living decades or centuries after uh, the time period you're, uh, you're talking about. So it's not the same place anymore. Uh, but to be there and to experience it makes a makes a big difference about in terms of how we produ- we produce these things and and then I hope that uh, I hope the readers will will realize the extraordinary value of studying Russian and Soviet environmental history, uh, particularly from a global comparative perspective. Uh, I'm hopeful that people who study the environmental history of other parts of uh, of the world or other time periods. Uh, will come to this book uh, to, to realize the degree that there's a lot to be learned uh, from the remarkable uh, kind of diversity of, uh, of nature and environment uh, that existed and continues to exist um, in Russia and the Soviet Union.
2: Well, thank you very much for participating in this interview, and I wish you all well.
0: Thank you so much, Samantha. Thanks, Samantha. Thank you.